morning, church. Please uh, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 521. Psalm 139, we're going to read the first uh, six verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let's pray. Father, the, the thought that you know us, that you know me so well, my innermost thoughts, desires would be completely terrifying but for your grace we thank you for the cross and as it is this truth is encouraging comforting and brings forth great thanksgiving in all of you Lord we pray for our brother as he comes Lord, we pray that you would use him to build up your church this morning. Father, and as we consider more of who you are, that we would leave rejoicing and glorifying in that truth. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, for those who are keeping up, this is a different microphone this week, and we'll just see how it goes. If there are no explosions, I'll use it again next week, all right? I wonder, as you consider the different relationships in your life, uh, the, the closest relationships in your life, your spouse, your closest friends, uh, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your other family... I wonder who you'd say, out of all those people, knows you best. Who knows you best? Who knows the good and the bad? Who knows what every facial expression means? Who knows what that tone, when you say that, who knows what you're really saying? Now, it probably comes as no surprise that I would say that Susan is that person for me, she is in the habit sometimes of when she gives me news, particularly if it's unpleasant news, to say something like this. I'm not quoting her. I'm just saying, this is my paraphrase. Now, I know you're not going to like this, so don't be upset. And then she proceeds to tell me the news. Now, why does she do that? She doesn't do that because she knows human nature in general. She doesn't do that because she knows how husbands can be. 
She doesn't do that because she knows how other men in our family or other men in our circle of friends might respond to something like that. She does it because she knows me. Apparently, I've not liked that kind of news in the past. And to my shame, I've obviously not responded well to that kind of news in the past. She knows me. In fact, I don't always like how much that she knows me. I keep hoping that even though it's been 22 years that we've known each other, that somehow by now I've got the wool pulled over her eyes and that I've got her fooled, but I simply don't. None of us have any of our wives fooled. But really, it is good that she knows me. It's good that friends know one another well. It's good for children that parents know them well. It's good as Christians to be in relationship with one another where we actually know one another well. If you have a particular person, maybe you have an accountability relationship with someone, they have to actually know you to, act, to be of any good to you. Isn't it interesting that the Bible tells us not just that we ought to confess our sins to the Lord, but we ought to confess our sins to one another. Part of what lies behind that is the fact that it is good to be known. It does not always feel pleasant to be known but it is good for us. And as well as any human being may know you, and as well as any human being may know me, they cannot know everything that there is to know. The Bible is clear about this, isn't it? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That no matter how much we try, our knowledge of one another is limited. We can't actually know the heart of another person. We can't perfectly know anyone's motives or thoughts. But God can, and God does, because He sees the heart. That's actually what, that's what brings us to this text today. We are in this series on the attributes of God, and thus far we've seen that God is holy, God is eternal, God is independent, God is sovereign, and today... God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Listen to a couple of things here. First from A.W. Pink. God knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. Nothing escapes His notice. Nothing can be hidden from Him. Nothing is forgotten by Him. He never errs, never changes, never overlooks anything. And then another A.W., this one, Tozer. Because God knows all things perfectly, He knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor, except when drawing men out for their own good, does he seek information or ask questions. Do you ever think about that as you're reading the Gospels? Jesus never asks a question because he lacks information. Jesus always asks a question in order to draw out what's in the other person. God knows all things, He knows all things perfectly. He is omniscient. 
And Psalm 139 in these first six verses speaks to the omniscience of God. Now, it's, this is not a theological treatise that we have in front of us. David hasn't written a theological treatise. He's written a song. If you notice just above verse 1 in the little title, it says, To the choir master. In many ways, it seems David's intending that someone come along and add some instrumentation and add a melody and add some harmonies so that the people of God will sing this in order to teach them something that they need to remember about the Lord. This isn't a private meditation journal that David has written. It is his meditation, but it's meant ultimately to be public. And this song does what any great song that we sing should do, and that is to take theological truth that stretches our minds and drive it into our hearts. That is what any great song that we sing together does, drives truth into the heart. Because when you find yourself humming that later, your blood has washed away my sin. What's happened? The song has driven the truth into your heart. And that's why music is so important. It's why, in fact, we sh- the Lord commands us not only to glorify Him by singing, but we need to sing because in singing the right things, we will remember them more fully as they are in music. So from these verses, what we learn is, in this uh, first verse of the song, if you will, if this is the first stanza in the, in the song, we learn that God's perfect knowledge of us inspires awe. That comes across clearly, and it's quite plain, just like that. First of all, notice that God's knowledge of us is personal. This song that David's written, it's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It's personal. Notice how personal the language is. God doesn't say that God has searched us. God has known us, though He could have, right? Because that's true. He doesn't say God has searched you, or God has searched every person in the, in the world, though He could say that. He says, God searched me and has known me. Listen to all these. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This public proclamation of this song is very personal. Very personal. You know, there's a very real danger when we come to discussions of theology, when we speak about the attributes of God and we seek to learn them. And the danger is that we let it become impersonal. It's just something where I fill in all the blanks of my note sheet and I can have a great discussion about it. But that's it. Ten years years ago when we moved here, Uh, We moved from Marion, and I was working as a hospice chaplain. And as a hospice chaplain, I didn't need the full array of books in my library. I knew I would preach some, so there were some books I wanted handy. There were some books I wanted to read. So as I was putting them in boxes when we moved to Marion, 
I, I classified them as I have my library in categories, so, you know, theology, history, Christian living, these kinds of things. I just have different categories. But as we were moving, I needed to prioritize because we didn't even have enough shelf space for all of these books. So I needed to prioritize what I thought I might need during those times and what I wouldn't. Well, when we moved here and we were unloading boxes, Kevin Shingleton, who is one of the most perceptive human beings on the planet, noticed that not only were my boxes in these categories, but some of them had these words written on them, not needed. So, theology, not needed. <laughs> Christian living, not needed. And believe me, I got plenty of hard time about that from Kevin. Uh, I'm sure someone was thinking, who is this person that we have brought here to be a pastor who says, theology, not needed. Well, friends, if we're not careful, this is exactly what we can do with the attributes of God. They're exhilarating to learn on a Sunday or in a Bible study or have a thrilling conversation about, but that's as far as it goes, and afterwards we get back to real life and we pack those things away in a box labeled, not needed. But that's not what David does. David didn't walk out of a Bible study on the omniscience of God and say, wow, God knows the motion of every molecule in the entire universe, though he does. David walked out of that Bible study and said, God knows me. So as we go on, don't think that we're talking about how God knows all the other people around us, right? God knows all those people out there. Let's not be thinking God knows you and you and you and you and you. Even if I use the word you, let's, I'm not going to be thinking it. We're all going to be thinking, God knows me. It's personal. This is why in verse 1 he says, you have searched me and known me. Searched is a very detailed knowledge that he speaks of there. Known is actually an experiential knowledge. So he's saying you know every detail. You have, you have in essence, experienced it along with me. There's, no, there's nothing, there's no point at which you've turned your head away and missed anything. God wrote the manual. He knows us inside and out. This knowledge is personal. Secondly, God's knowledge of us is complete. So if you take that first verse, O Lord, you have searched me and known me, that's like the compact version of everything that comes afterward because he teases out what he means by you have searched me and known me. You know every detail and every experience. He pulls it apart and he lets us see. And I've categorized these things so that we can just have some categories that all these things go in. God's knowledge of us is complete. First, He absolutely, perfectly knows our outer life. Notice just what He says. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know my lying down. God knows what we do and God knows where we go. Now, within our home, there are a number of cell phones active. And these cell phones, all of them, at any given moment, I can go on my cell phone and I can pinpoint with as much accuracy as GPS will give me, where all those other phones are. So this is helpful. If 
My daughter rides her bike to the library. Then I can see, okay, she made it. Okay, she's on her way home. Okay, she's not on her way home. It even tells me in that particular app how much battery life is left in her phone. So I know she needs to get home and charge so I can keep up with her. But that can only happen if the person with the other phone grants permission. So I can't find your phone. I'm not that clever. But I can find theirs because they've given me permission. By persuasion, they've given me permission. But they've given me permission. But this is not the case with God. God needs no permission to know where it is that we go. He sees us. Friend, He sees when you are working hard to provide for your family. He sees when you minister to someone else and nobody else sees it. He sees the struggle you're going through as you try to help your children with their struggles. He knows it. He sees the tears that you are shedding in prayer. He sees the generosity of giving that no one else will know about. I mean, this is what Jesus says, isn't it, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? When we pray and when we give and when we fast and we do it privately, He says, the God who sees in secret will reward. But not only that, He sees where you are even if you lied to your parents about where you're going, even if you lied to your wife about where you're going, the Lord sees you. He knows where you're at online. He knows who you're chatting with at every moment, even in the most private of locations. He sees. He knows our outer life even when we try to hide that outer life. God also sees our inner life. In the verse 2, you discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 4 goes so far as to say, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. God sees our thoughts. He sees when our thoughts please Him. He sees when our thoughts are holy. He sees when our thoughts are for Him. And He sees when our thoughts are self-centered, when they are sinful when they are slanderous against others. Even when you don't say it, He sees what you wish you would have said somehow to get that other person. He sees when our thoughts are vulgar. He sees the heart of a married man or woman enjoying the attention of someone who's not their spouse. He sees the heart of a single man or woman enjoying the attention of someone who's married to another person. He sees the desire of your heart. He sees what you really want. He sees what you're really after in that business deal. He sees whether you love God or love money. He sees whether you're serving others or serving yourself. He sees whether you're seeking to please God or please man. He knows what's inside through and through. And this bit about speech, I mean, the, the, the truth is, is that speech is often reflexive. It's, uh, uh, it's just a reflexive thing, like something comes out just like that. We don't, you don't say something, and then I sit down and say, well, 
how am I going to respond to this rudeness that I've just been given? Well, let me deliberate about it for a couple of weeks, and then I'll let you know. No. Boom, boom. That's how fast it happens. That's why people say things like, I, I didn't mean to say that. That's why people say things like, I, I often speak before I think. Because speech is very reflexive, and yet, even though we don't take the time to think about every single word that comes out of our mouth, do you know who sees that millisecond thought that went right before it came out like a reflex? God. I mean, Jesus tells us that our speech originates in our heart. It's, it's not just some biological reflex, you see. It's a spiritual reflex. And do you know who sees the heart? Well, the Lord does. Before the thing that came into your life that prompted the speech even happened, the Lord sees the thoughts of your heart that will lead to the response that you give. The Lord knows what we say under our breath. The Lord knows what we say after we've hung up the phone to the person we were just talking to. The Lord hears when we are alone in the car and we're speaking to the other drivers around us. The Lord hears it. The Lord sees it. It's not like a court reporter who can only take down what is verbally said. This is like the ultimate court reporter. Well, he said this, but he was thinking that. He said he would gladly do that for his wife, but here's what he really was thinking. Here's what she said, but here's what she didn't say that she really wished she would have said just to be really cruel in response. He sees the inner life. He sees the outer life. Third category, he sees our way of life. So he says uh, in verse 3, You search out my path. You are acquainted with all my ways. This is more than just a single action, a path and ways. These are things in the Scripture that speak of a pattern, speak of a direction, speak of where we're going. He knows the path of our lives. He knows where we're headed. He knows where we're aimed. He knows. The, Jesus draws a, dis, a distinction between that path which will, that way which will lead to heaven, and that way which will lead to destruction in hell. And the Lord knows who is on the narrow way that leads to life. And He knows those who are on the broad way that lead to destruction, even those who are on the broad way and really would like very much to convince everyone around them that they're on the narrow way. Even those who are on the broad way of destruction and still haven't fully comprehended 
the resignation to the will of Christ and following Christ and dying to self. And so they just thought that one decision was all that needed. That one religious emotional experience when I was seven years old or when I was 14 or when I was 40, that's all that was really required of me. Well, it's a narrow way. It's not a narrow decision that leads to life. It's a narrow way. The decision is the first step on the path of life to turn from sin, to turn from loving the world, and to follow Jesus. But he doesn't just know that. He knows whether we as Christians are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. He knows it. He knows when we're trying to follow in Jesus' steps, and he knows when we'd just like to walk our own way right now. Thank you very much. But he doesn't just know these things. There's an added dimension to these words. So when he says, you search out my path and are acquainted, to search out there isn't the same kind of detailed exploration that you have in verse 1. It's a different word, and it's a word that speaks of winnowing. Winnowing is the process by which wind blows away the shaft of, of grain so that only the seed remains, only the useful part. So when he says, you search out my path, he's saying, you blow away everything that is external, everything that's not going to matter, and you get to the heart of the matter. When he says, you are acquainted, it speaks of knowing the nature of something, what it's truly like. When we, when we speak of acquaintances, we mean somebody we don't actually know very well. We know of them. Uh, we would never call them to ask us to move, Right? They're just an acquaintance, unless you're Jeremiah and April, in which case you need as much help as possible. So if you're on their contact list, they're going to be calling you very soon. Yeah. So, but here's the thing is that this word acquainted doesn't just mean they kind of know. It means they fully know. He fully knows. He knows the exact nature of what you're like. You and I can portray such things in public and make people think such things, and God blows away the shaft of all of it and sees with precision and perfection where we're really headed in life, what we're really after. In other words, God doesn't just see the paths of our lives. He doesn't just observe them. He evaluates them. Friends, God is not cheering us on as we make our own way in life. God's design is that we walk in His ways. Psalm 128, verse 1, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Psalm chapter 1, verse 6, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows our outer life. God knows our inner life. God knows our way of life. There's nothing left. That's everything. That's all of it. He knows us through and through. His knowledge of us is complete, which the fact that it's personal and the fact that it's complete really leads to a logical conclusion, which is the third point. His knowledge of us is overwhelming. His knowledge of us is overwhelming. To be known by another person is one thing, isn't it? 
That knowledge is limited, but God's knowledge is not, and this is what's overwhelming. If you just look at verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's too wonderful, meaning it's mysterious, meaning it's extraordinary, meaning David can't wrap his mind around it. He can't comprehend fully a God who fully knows him. And yet God does. And we see this same kind of duality in Jeremiah chapter 17. So in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer is nobody. Nobody actually fully comprehends the heart. You don't. I don't. We are a mixed motive group of folks a lot of the time. We can't even fully wrap our minds around our own heart. But the very next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So our knowledge of ourselves is limited, but God's knowledge of ourselves is not. That's what's overwhelming David. And if you're hearing it right, it's what should be overwhelming you. It's what's overwhelming to me. It's high. I can't attain it. It's out of reach. I can't get to it. I can't figure it out. It belongs to God alone. Now, you may have noticed we skipped over verse 5. Well, that was on purpose because here we have the, uh, the result. and then So it's like the result and then the explanation of why. Because it's too wonderful. It's too high. What does it do to him? Well, look at what it does. Look at what the Lord does to him. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, that Hebrew word for hem me in, it can be used in a couple of different ways. It can be used to speak of care, God's care for us. And that is a wonderful truth, isn't it? God's care for us, particularly in suffering. You know, the recent tornadoes that came through, we have some friends up in Grant County, and they were huddled together in the center of their house. The tornado hit the front part of their house, leapt over them, and hit the back part of their house. But what I want you to picture is this couple huddled around their children. Can you see what it might have looked like as the, the train of the tornadoes coming through? Arms around them, covering their heads, Right? Parents doing everything they can to do what? Hem them in. Hem them in so nothing will get to them. Well, the Lord does this for us. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord addresses those who might say something like this. My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. I mean, when we suffer the worst things in life, isn't it, it's not uncommon for us to say something just like this, isn't it? To say, uh, excuse me, but my life must be hidden from God. God is at work doing all kinds of wonderful things in all kinds of people who probably deserve it, but where is God for me? I belong to God just as much as that next person, and my right seems to be disregarded by the Lord. Where is the Lord here? Well, he goes on to say, we, I didn't put it on the screen, but he goes on to say, don't you, don't you know... Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He never tires. He never, he, he never grows weary. He never grows faint. But do you know what He loves to do? 
loves to give strength to the weary and power to the faint. And those who wait on the Lord will be renewed in their strength. In other words, don't you dare for a second think that you're forgotten, that you're hidden. You're not. God sees, God knows, God has us hemmed in, if you will. Nothing will ever shake us loose from His grip. Nothing will ever hide us from His gaze. Nothing will ever separate us from His love. That's one way him in is used, but that's not how David uses it. The other way that one can be hemmed in is when an army is surrounding your city and they are poising to attack. In fact, that's the greatest way that the word is used in the Old Testament is when someone, when you see the word besieged, some city is besieged, is typically this word. They're surrounded and they're coming in and nobody's getting away. Now, David's not saying that God is against him. What he's saying is that he cannot hide from God's penetrating gaze. Specifically, he can't hide in his sin. We can be so deceived as to think that we can pull the wool over God's eyes, that that like the Wizard of Oz, we can somehow amaze God with a great show of goodness, all the while hiding behind the curtain, hoping we'll never be found. We ask the question of Psalm 73 in our hearts all the time, don't we? How can God know? How can God know? But He does. We can't squirm out of His gaze. It's... Imagine a toddler running through your house with something sharp in their hand. And they're running. And what are you doing as parents? Well, you're trying to hem them in, right? So, mom gets that side, I get this. This is after you have two two children, you have to play a zone defense. You can no longer play man-on-man defense. But this one child is running around with these scissors, and they're laughing like, ha, 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 look what I've got. And mom and dad are like, get him, right? So... You're blocking the stairs. You're blocking this. And what do you do? You slowly come in. Why? Because the thing in that child's hand will kill them. That's the way that God hymns us in. That's why He does. Because the very sin that we would hang on to and run around and laugh and think it's no big deal, it's just a little sin, no big deal, it's, it's hidden, it's not affecting anybody else, I'm not breaking up my marriage with this, I'm not, I'm not ruining anything with this, nobody even knows about it, it's just mine. Dear friends, it's running around with something that will kill you. And so God has David hemmed in. Now, why do I draw that conclusion? I don't just pick it because I really want to talk about our sin. I pick it because, look at the second half of verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. That is particular kind of language, and David has used it multiple times, this idea of God's hand on him to speak of times when he is under conviction of sin. So in Psalm, it's not going to be on the screen, Psalm 32, verse 4, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Psalm 38, verse 2, Your hand has come down on me. And that's, look, that's what conviction feels like, doesn't it? 
when you know you've done wrong? Doesn't it feel like the pressing down of God on you? Doesn't it feel like His hand is on you? Like when your brother, uh, when you were growing up, your brother would pin you and hold you down until you'd said uncle and, forget, and, and surrendered? It happened to me all the time. God will put His gracious hand on us until we say, Father, I surrender and confess and repent. I also draw that conclusion because of what's at the end of the, the chap, end of this song, the last couple of lines of these lyrics in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Now, he, now, what comes next will give us a clue to what David thinks about this searching and trying. He's not going to say, and you know, keep caring about me, God. Carry me through the hard times. What does he say? He says, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So at the beginning of the, of the, of the psalm, he says, you have searched me and known me. There's no, there's no sin in my outer life, sin in my inner life, sin in the way of life. There's nothing I can get away with. You have me hemmed in. And in the end, he basically says, I wouldn't want it any other way. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's wonderful. Friend, I mean, the fact is, is that you may keep your sin from your family and from your friends and from your church and from your pastor and from your accountability partner, but you cannot keep it from God. In the book of Joshua, there's an interesting story where a man named Achan disregards the command of God. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us who may have known about this, but the one person we come to realize knows full well what has happened is the Lord. And the Lord brings defeat to His people because of this sin among them. He exposes Achan and He punishes him and others. Friends, I will tell you, secret sin isn't just about you and the Lord. Secret Sin will ruin a church. Secret. I don't mean sin that we're not blasting up on the screen and saying, well, here's what everybody did this week. I mean sin that is treasured. Sin that is hidden away. I'm not interested in confessing it. I'm not interested in repenting of it. I'm not interested in dealing with it. I'm not interested in anybody else knowing about it. I'm not interested in the fact that I used to have that pattern of sin and I'm back in it, but I don't want anybody to know it. I just mean secret, secretive sin. It will ruin, it will stifle, it will dull the spiritual vitality of any church. I wonder if there might be secret sin in our congregation. Sin that you're harboring, that you're hiding, that even somehow in deceit you are defending. Dear friend, if so, you will dishonor the Lord and you will hurt this church until you deal with it, until you confess it and you repent of it. 
Some people are so greatly skilled at hiding their sin. But what if I tell you, I look at every one of you, and I tell you this, I know about it. I know about it. I know about it. And I'll be in touch this week. If that's you, you know what just happened? Your heart rate just went up. Why? Because being found out does that. But friend, God knows, and there is no secret sin with God. Numbers 32 says clearly, be sure your sin will find you out. He will hem you in. His hand will be on you until you confess, until you repent, because that's what's best for you. Some elders and some deacons just this last Wednesday night got together to pray for our congregation. Praying for the Lord to bring renewal refreshment, revival, new vitality among us. Because we sense it is greatly needed among us. And I wonder if our sense of need comes from some sin that still remains unknown to us. We will continue to dishonor the Lord and continue to hurt His people so long as we cling to sin rather than to righteousness. He will hem you in. His hand will be on you until you confess and repent. Why? Because you're running around laughing with something in your hand that will kill you. God's omniscience, His thorough perfect knowledge of us can be comforting and it can be terrifying. But if you're a Christian, the God who knows you personally and completely loves you, He has not left you, He knows the sin, He is omniscient, all-knowing, but He counts not their sum. That's what we just sang. That in Christ, our sin was thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. If you are in suffering, He knows and He cares and He is at work, though you may not see it so clearly at this moment. Trust Him. Obey Him. If you are in sin, He knows But if you will come to your senses and repent as the prodigal son did and get up and get going, turn from sin and turn back to the Lord, do you know what will happen? The Lord Himself, like the prodigal's father, will come running with arms of mercy and wrap around you and restore you. Why would you not want that? Because you don't want to be known? 
What foolishness we hang on to sometimes. And for the non-Christian, the truth is, is that God knows you this well as too. He knows you this thoroughly. He won't be evaded, even if you deny His existence, even if you deny His judgment. And yet at the same time, His love is clear. Romans 5, but God shows His love for us in that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, when you take sinners and you add all of those categories from Psalm 139 to that word sinners, and you expand it out, sinners in our outer life, sinners in our inner life, sinners in our way of life, He knows every single bit of sin that must be forgiven in order for us to be reconciled to God. When you hear that, and then you hear, while we were still there, Christ died for us. That is glorious. God does not offer us salvation under the delusion that we're somehow good enough to receive it. He offers us salvation, in fact, because He sees us clearly for who we actually are as those who need His redeeming grace. And so if you will turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, you will be forgiven, made right with God. You'll enter into a personal relationship with the God of the universe. You'll come to know Him, truly know Him, and, Galatians says, to be known by Him. No longer as a judge prepared to condemn, but as a father prepared to bring you home. God's perfect knowledge of us inspires awe. And all that should rejoice when we are sinning, when we are suffering, and, and that should repent when we are sinning. Where are you at today? I may not know, but the Lord does. And He can meet you right where you're at. It'd be one thing if God just knew these things, right? But all of these attributes go together. He knows us and He's holy. He knows us and He's independent. He knows us and He's sovereign. He can intervene and change everything today. Would you turn to Him? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge 
is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us the rest of this day and now and forevermore. Amen.